Hello, welcome everyone. Thank you for joining us today. This is the Feminist City and it's a podcast series hosted by Vidhi Center for Legal Policy where we discuss urban planning, exclusion, the big, the small and the mundane details that go into making the city. I have here with me Dr. Zaryu Natarajan from Aapti Institute and I'm really excited to have her as a guest. Dr. Natarajan has a PhD in political science from King's College London, a master's in public policy and she's also a lawyer. She has a background in management consulting, venture investing, program management and development and is currently working at Aapti in policy research at the intersections of technology and society. Hi Sarvyu, thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure to be here. So what I would like to do is talk to you a little bit about the work that you did during your PhD. If I understand correctly, your work had involved uh, researching migrants in Bangalore. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Right. Um, of course. So my work was uh, a little bit about migration, but I specifically looked at political behavior in the context of housing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's impossible to think about um, housing in urban areas without sort of grappling with the question of migration as it's very central. So that is very central to the way urban areas grow. And it's very intimately linked to the quest for housing for many uh, in urban areas. So I think that the two sort of tie into each other very much. So what I looked at specifically was the way in which the urban poor navigate the state and the role of political intermediaries in uh, enabling this kind of access. Uh, But more widely, I was able to look at some of the struggles of migrant communities because fieldwork was in uh, two communities that um, were mostly migrants. Uh, Some of the struggles of the migrant communities uh, in participating in urban areas, in being able to access uh, a range of sort of governance, both services and, you know, participate in a certain way in state making and city making at the urban in urban areas the gender aspect of this and I think you know we should come back to this in the course of this conversation the big struggle is of course the visibility of the issue itself and very often uh, and I think you know you alluded to it in one of the earlier conversations we had as well which is that the imagination of the migrant is very often uh, male and very often young male that's what I was actually just going to come to it primarily to understand. I mean, I think we are all we all talk about migrant labor and we see migrant labor even in our communities when we I mean, it, it, it's, it's like the city wouldn't work without them. But I think there is very little understanding of what specific challenges they face. And also this assumption when we think of the migrant worker, it is a young, able bodied male. So what I wanted to I mean, my next question was essentially going to be about that. What are the challenges that migrant workers who come into Bangalore face in negotiating access to services and how do they go about it? And what specifically do women face? Right. You're absolutely right. I mean, I think the experience is very differentiated by by gender for sure, but it's also differentiated by where migrants come from. So uh, migrants who come from parts of the country that are closer to the destination of migration have a very different experience than ones that come from uh, further away. And I think a lot of that then goes into patterns by which the state is accessed, by which a range of private services is accessed, by the way in which housing is accessed. So it it brings about a lot of variation and differentiation in this kind of work. And I think that that's where, you know, one must be very thoughtful about understanding this in that, uh, in a very specific way. I think just to talk about some of the, the specifics of, you know, different experiences, the imagination, like you pointed out, is very much that of a young, able-bodied male who comes uh, and, and there's a certain sort of romanticization of the distance, the journey and all of that. And then there's 
a range of other migrants who come in for a variety of other works. There is sort of the circular migration uh, of individuals who come in from across the border. And Bangalore, speaking specifically of Bangalore, uh, is very much located near you know two states, Andhra Pradesh and Tamil Nadu, and you have migrants who come in uh, from across these states as well. Women experience a certain amount of, women have a gendered experience of that city and women migrants definitely do, overlaid with the other disadvantages or other concerns around not being familiar with the language, not being familiar with the destination of migration. There's also, of course, the gendered aspect. And one example which is often discussed is, for example, in the context of housing. Women experience a lot of struggle in being able to find safe and secure housing. And if you see the woman migrant as having migrated for work, though female migration is much more complex than just labor-based migration, you would hear of a range of stories and a range of experiences around difficulties in accessing the city, accessing safe, secure housing where there's proper access to sanitation, uh, and of course, sort of the elements of physical security. So I think that that's an important aspect in the way in which uh, female migrants navigate the city. And then with all of this, one must take an intersectional approach. And if you think about sort of the challenges and what multiplies some of the challenges in accessing urban spaces, participating in governance more broadly, you know, you have to think about the various categories or the various identities one inhabits in in being an urban migrant, in addition to, so of course, the category of just being an urban migrant. So uh, I don't know if that was a complex answer, but I think that... Um, you know, it, it, it is very much an interplay of sort of different concerns that mediates how uh, one accesses the city. No, absolutely. That is, no, thank you. That was actually very illuminating. What I was curious about to understand, if you could talk to me, is sort of what are the chief challenges in that if there is a woman migrant worker who's coming from a neighboring state, how do they go about accessing housing at all in Bangalore? In the sense, is there, is there, do they usually come into the city with people that they already know in the city? Or are there, how is it that they actually manage to secure housing in the first place? Do you think that you could tell us a little bit about that? Right. So this question, I guess, relates to the specific category of female migrants who come in for work. But the predominant story and a fair lot of it is invisible. And there's also not more recent data about this, um, is that female migration is primarily marriage driven and it's inter-district migration in the sense that women migrate because they are married and then enter the labor force, which is a completely different conversation in accessing urban areas because it's very much mediated through your family or through sort of, I mean, and there's of course a patriarchal lens in this as well, but it's mediated through the family, right? So you migrate in order to get married. And then there might be labor force participation post that, but that's a you know different set of concerns because you don't have to navigate the question of housing. What is emerging, and again, this is a challenge of the space. And you know, I'd love to learn if there are sort of uh, different views or more available data on this. But we know very little about female migration for work, and this typically is linked to a few industries where female participation of the workforce is more gendered or rather more dominated by women. And I think that this is a fairly small segment, but growing one as well. So the challenges are very much dependent on the way in which women have to navigate the city in general, but overlaid by the fact that there are often no social connections. In general, 
Mm. Again, I mean, I, this goes back to the point and not to belabor it at all, but maybe one should, but the imagination of migration is also of a young able-bodied man, which means that even the literature talks about this kind of migration, which is generally driven by, like it's called a bridgehead. So somebody, an individual would migrate to the urban area and then bring in more sort of members from the community into the, into the city to work here. So both the job and access to the city is mediated through this bridgehead. We don't have a wide range of empirical evidence about female migration. And I, but having said that, I think it's something that is starting to get onto people's research agendas. There's a whole lot of scholars who are thinking about gender and migration and participation in platform work. So it's very much at that intersection, but there is a certain invisibility. And I think that that's something to think about. And I think other sort of point I'd like to make here is that female work right is is so it's invisible for two reasons one is it's work by women and the second is that it's very often work that's performed in private spaces and it's not often like visible or apparent with the exception of a few professions and I think that that also in some ways plays into the imagination of what a female migrant is um, so I think I mean I guess the answer is I can answer your question but only in part but what I'd like to do is to point out the fact that there is a need for much more empirical evidence on this question. No, that makes a lot of sense. I understand that. I mean, I'm going to come to uh, come to that a little bit in terms of why is there a lack, I mean, the, the problems with the lack of data and empirical evidence about this. But I was just curious because as you talked about it, women, is, as you said, the dominant pattern of migration is often through marriage, right? As, as inter-district migration, as you mentioned. So what about children of migrant um, migrants who come into the city? In the sense, do they often travel? Who, what happens with childcare when there is a lack of secure housing in a sense in your research should you come across how these communities manage this in in this context i don't have direct empirical evidence but i do have anecdotal data i think what i did observe in the community was that it's very much you know driven by the community there are and there's a whole lot of particularly in the context of the contract labor regulation act and certain legislations on hiring migrant workers there's very much the provision that large employers need to provide for creches and child Childcare. So that dimension is attended to at least some imagination for this exists in the policy framework. But having said that, I think uh, the implementation of what exists on the ground is very much a far cry. It's very much driven by communities. So you'd have at least what I observed in the sites that I did my field work in was that you'd have women taking care of multiple children sometimes. So it's very much a community activity. And I, But I do think that there is a genuine concern here because you don't have any sort of safe, secure childcare. It's often you, you have transition schools or like schools for like they call bridge schools, I think, mm-hmm. for children of migrant workers to enter local schools. And you need that because of the language, medium of instruction, all of those concerns around sort of migrating from one place to the other but on the ground there's a huge variation in where and what and how this is enacted but um, you know this is I guess it's anecdotal that I have from my work uh, in Bangalore. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think uh, the next question that I think I have is about the institutional
institutional response itself. As I think we've talked about the ways in which different migrant uh, workers or even for there are different migration patterns, right? How do institutions in Bangalore respond to the needs of these communities? In a sense, what is there? Could you tell me a little bit about that? Because in, in talking about how do they approach them in terms of provision of services? And in this context, is there any special attention given to women migrant workers or women who are migrating into Bangalore? Is there that imagination itself at that level? In, in terms of their policies or uh, decision-making? Right. I think in order to answer or begin answering that question, one must think about the political economy question here. One of, And this is something that's talked about fairly in the literature, but one of the big challenges in thinking about institutional responses is that institutions don't necessarily have the political incentive to to care, right? So migrants, particularly those that come from other states, experience huge barriers in being registered to vote. And the absence of having a vote, being able to find avenues for expression in the polity policy sense is a bit constrained. So why would, for example, and this sounds horrid, but why would a rational self-interested politician who cares about the next election pay too much heed to this, to migrants, right? Whether it's, you know, male, able-bodied migrants or sort of wider range of uh, experiences in the context of migration. So I think that that is something that that must be a framing thought in unpacking migrants' access to urban areas and female migrants' access to urban areas. And I think that, that, so that's the first sort of leg of the problem. The second, of course, is a certain invisibility around the way in which migration happens and the way in which female migrants especially do their work in urban areas. Uh, So a lot of female work is typically domestic work. It's in garment industry. So there is a certain visibility there. More recently in the context of platform economy work, which is like home services, like salon uh, therapy, those kinds of services are also performed in homes. So they're not visible in the in the physical, corporeal sense. So there's a certain invisibility on that. And then there's broadly challenges around data because, you know, as you might know, uh, in the context of the recent conversations around migration and the pandemic, the state kind of suggested that there isn't enough data for us to have a you know, meaningful policy response in this context. So I think just being aware that it's both a political economy and a visibility slash data problem is very important in thinking about, you know, what's wrong or what mediates access. Why do migrants struggle? Both these reasons are relevant in thinking about this. And of course, you know, the other sort of tropes that exist and they pop up, this may not necessarily have to do with specific responses at any point of time, uh, but rather are issues in the context of elections, like migrants are taking away jobs or, you know, some kind of language configuration. So those are other kind of issues that also exist in the context of migration. And this is not, I mean, this is, this is gendered because women additionally need to navigate, you know, just being women uh, over and above all of these issues. So I think that that's something to think about in the context of migration here. Yeah, I mean, this actually brought me to two questions about this. One is, one in, in terms of the visibility itself, I think uh, one thing that happened during the pandemic is also a hyper-visibility on migrant workers, right? In a sense, we saw images of migrant workers literally walking back to their homes. And do you think that this kind of awareness of the, of, of this 
uh, state of affairs causing any change in the responses and what should ideally be what is a what is a good institutional response in your opinion in terms of in 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 catering to the services and needs of uh, migrant workers in bangalore second is the question i think i wanted to uh, i mean I, i would love to hear what you think is is in terms of not just internal migrants but external migrants because i think the narrative in the last year has been also about bangladeshi uh, immigrants who are taking away jobs from the country right that is there was a there was a particular type of storytelling or narrative around that and in the way in which there are people from certain communities in bangalore who are also been targeted by the uh, police and uh, so i was just curious about how does this affect the women in these communities in the sense because i think when we think about bangladeshi workers i don't know how many people imagine you know a woman who is trying to take care of her children and working in a particular area in bangalore so yeah i'd, I'd love to know right both those questions are incredibly interesting and terribly hard to answer so i'll try i'll try to answer the second question first i think the question of internal migrants um, versus external migrants i think the additional challenge or the additional sort of concern with respect to external migrants is this layering of the political discourse which is which brings about a paradoxical sort of hypervisibility with uh, an you know an unwillingness in a certain way to respond to some of the very visible concerns uh, that these communities experience so i think that that's uh, that's one big challenge i don't know so much about uh, external migrants in the sense that my work didn't necessarily engage with one wouldn't know either ex, you know with migrants that are not from india and then there's like like i said there's a whole lot of political layering here that one must unpack before one gets into um, some of these questions but you know i mean speaking specifically of women migrants right there's this there are sort of the visible markers of access and the ability to navigate the city or you know have safe public transport these are all things that you can see and in a certain way even measure like for example did you get water or did you get you know your welfare benefit that you are eligible to you know do you have safe childcare do you have some job like all of those things are fairly quantifiable measurable visible aspects of of what of the migrant experience and one can almost begin to say or link back to categories of migration or you can begin to link back to who is coming and why these sort of services or access levels vary so differently vary so much right so there's that aspect but i think what's invisible and i think that this is much more difficult to quantify or measure is the sheer experience of being a female migrant or a migrant in this city um, and the toll and the enormous toll that it takes on uh, one's mental health and consequently on i guess other aspects of one's health as well which is that you know you no point of time are you secure very often migrants come into fairly insecure housing where you literally the experience is that your house could be you know uprooted soon uh, just to sort of relate an experience during my field work you know the word kayam right kayam means permanent uh, yeah. or permanence in yeah. in variety of languages and one of the performance was uh, we were having a conversation and then at some point of time he says but we are never kayam you, you know you could come back tomorrow and we might not exist so finish your field work today and it's it's 
it i mean i you know i always sort of uh, struggled to process that single moment in the fieldwork experience but i also think that um, that invisible aspect of the migration experience the having to navigate the city through insecure housing and insecure everything is something that we need to talk a lot more about in in talking about migration and internal and external I don't want to reduce them to categories because there's a profound in a certain way different experience I guess but I think that but you know this this invisible mental psychic visceral sort of experience is something we need to talk a lot more about in the context of migration you know overlaid by gender talking a little bit more about you know what kind of response there should be i think it's a harder question to answer i think we need to unpack a little bit more about both the political economy and how that's the dynamics of it because that is something that's changing as well as uh, migration patterns change and evolve they're also fairly geographically specific so one must pay attention to that and i think also a certain amount of visibility um, like i said there are a fair amount of scholars there's aditi suri at ihs uh, there's nupur rawal a bunch of people who are sort of working on uh, thinking about gender particularly platform work and in a certain way migration uh, but i think having more robust visibility and empirical knowledge of how these experiences are some of the quantifiable ones as well as some of the uh, more sort of emotive ones i think is very very important for us to have a, a measured sort of policy response in this context got it no thank you so much that makes a lot of sense i mean if i understand correctly what i'm also taking away from this conversation is that while there is a lack of empirical data there is also a certain sense that like as you said that uh, i mean something that i caught while you were talking earlier was that there is also a reliance of um, of migrant workers on public infrastructure robust transportation systems and could you talk a little bit about how this affects i mean in the sense i'm trying to understand because i think some of the things that we take for granted those of us who can navigate the city without having to rely specifically on public services can i think become crucial or essential for someone who doesn't have those options right in a sense i was just trying to understand did you notice a specific i mean the importance of urban infrastructure itself in and around these communities whether it's in the form of sanitation facilities whether it's in the form of uh, bus stops and bus services in a sense i'm just trying to understand what are the kinds of services that communities particularly rely on in in, in navigating their work and their life in bangalore right that's a super interesting question i and i think sort of you've hit on something very fundamental here right what happens when the state is absent is that a private market creeps in and it's fairly problematic and exploitative of uh, the most vulnerable right so let's take for example water in the absence of access to water what ends up happening is that you rely on a private i yeah you know take like it's an intermediary is perhaps the word who controls access to a pipe and a tap and you would pay them 2 rupees or 5 rupees a pot of water uh each time we wanted to get access to water now imagine what that means right this is water is something that's fundamental to human existence this is something that the state should be providing even if it's at a you know that you have to pay for it if it's metered and you, you sort of pay for how much you consume even then it's something that the state should provide whereas now it's being served by a 
a private market and often very much in the realm of profiteering, very problematic, very exploitative relationships that exist in the context of access to basic urban infrastructure. And that's the same for, for water, for sanitation. You know, you would have instances, particularly when during women's menstrual cycles, you would end up paying somebody to use their bathroom or, you know, a local person who has access to a bathroom. And so these these private markets are something to that replace the provision of state services. So that's one narrative to think about and the way in which this interplay between basic services from the state versus the private markets that, you know, that provide them uh, in fairly problematic ways. Healthcare too are things that uh, one pillar to contemplate. The second, I think, is one must also talk about some of the housing policy narratives in this context because a lot of the housing policy narratives and this is, you know, much, you know, keeps popping up like these visions of a Singapore-like city, you know, like clean India, slum-free Bangalore, you know, those kinds of visions, which yeah. often involve displacing entire communities of slum dwellers and relocating them into the peripheries of the city where land is more freely available. And, you know, you can sort of have, or the state can invest in construction. While this is an important function in the sense that housing must be provided. It's more problematic because it's located in A, this idea that, you know, you can clean up the city, but also what it means for access to infrastructure in these peripheral areas, right? We know in most urban areas, peripheral uh, parts of the city are more poorly connected to public transport, more poor, like a lower availability of job opportunities. So a lot of the contestation in a certain way happens around that, which is that communities don't want to move, but the state is trying to drive entire communities to shift to the peripheries with these notions of um, of sort of a clean urban area or whatever else, right? Mm-hmm. And also, of course, you know, land is a very precious commodity particularly in the areas closer to the city and so the temptation is often to displace migrant communities the poor in order to replace it with you know some kind of fancy glitzy construction so I think that there's both these pillars that inform the way in which this access is navigated you know either the rise or the existence of private markets and be the the way in which these housing policy kind of conversations happen, which sort of brings about or results in uh, a fair amount of conflict in the context of housing. So I think, yeah, both of these are important to think about. No, absolutely. Because I mean, uh, when you were talking about it, I was just thinking about, you know, what we learn uh, in terms of when, uh, at least in law school, when they taught us about even the rehabilitation, the resettlement act and land acquisition. One of the things that I think a lot of us often fail to also consider that it's not just resettlement of a community from one geographical location to the other. It's also the entire political economy of that space, right? The networks and the jobs and the opportunities that they have been able to make in the city, which is often like, as you mentioned, there are more economic opportunities. And also, it's like, uh, it's, it's not just about shifting someone's home. It's about their entire life and the, the way that they've been going on to work and where they've been um, keeping their children for childcare. So there is like a series of networks of relationships that I think people have formed that are disrupted, right? And I think uh, it's often something that doesn't quite enter into our own like consciousness in, in thinking about uh, what, how violent this can be, this act of uh, displacing people from where they live and, you know, have uh, formed their life. And there's this almost elitist assumption, or not almost, elitist assumption that, you know, why wouldn't you move for a 
better house but then your reason to stay in a particular place is not just you know the physical aspect of just the house but it's also a range of networks it's the community um and what that means for your sense of identity or sense of well-being as well as you know your economic opportunities because if you don't have access to transportation and you don't have access to jobs then there is you know there's a challenge there so i think that that you're absolutely right in thinking that uh, this is a violent process it uh, and it often comes from a very problematic set of assumptions as well That concludes part 1 of my conversation with Dr. Sarayu Natarajan. In part 2 of the conversation which will be released next week, we will talk about the platform economy, the specific challenges faced by women workers in the platform economy, the problems and challenges that are inbuilt into the platform economy itself, precarity, surveillance, and some of the ways in which law can address these questions. We also discuss political participation of women in cities. It's an extremely engaging conversation and I hope you'll join us again next week. Readings that have been discussed today and concepts that have been touched upon in this conversation, uh you will find them on our website. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel so you'll continue to catch these episodes. Thank you for staying with us and I hope you have a nice day.